It's freezing out. But that's the choice you made to venture out into the cold this late at night. But it's worth it. It's 11.59 p.m. on New Year's Eve, 1979, and you found yourself in Times Square in New York City. As you look up at that glittering ball and can't feel your toes, it still feels like a significant place to be because this isn't just any regular new year, but the beginning of a brand new decade. It's a decade full of possibilities, hope, and dreams. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, we journey back to where it all began. This is a look back at the year 1980. I was born in the late 70s, so I didn't get a full experience of what the 1970s were all about. But it did sound like a pretty tumultuous decade. There were all the issues regarding the Vietnam War, Watergate, economic downturns, the energy crisis, not to mention disco and bell bottoms that would hopefully be left in the 70s. What was this brand new decade going to look like? Would the 1980s usher in a new and bountiful era? The focus of these yearly reviews on the podcast is mainly pop culture related. The movies, TV shows, cartoons, music, video games, sports, and technology. But we can't ignore some of the major world events and political situations taking place. One of the most notable things regarding 1980 is it resulted in a changing of the guard when Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter to become the 40th president of the United States. This election took place during a lot of domestic turmoil and also the Iran hostage crisis. Reagan took 50.7% of the popular vote and 489 of the 538 electoral college votes. This was also the first time since the 50s that Republicans took control of the Senate. Reagan wouldn't be sworn in until January 1981, but his election win in 1980 set in motion what the 80s would be. His strategies helped give an end to the Cold War, with Margaret Thatcher remarking that, quote, Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot, unquote. But speaking of that, just a few months into his presidency, the world almost lost a president when an attempted assassination of Reagan took place on March 30th, 1981, a topic I have a previous episode all about. Reagan's economic policies, dubbed Reaganomics, were based on trickle-down economics to help stimulate a sagging economy. But also part of Reaganomics was his deregulation of industries. Reagan lauded free markets and blamed the energy crisis and high inflation on the overregulation of the U.S. economy. And this was having an impact all over the world. Reagan famously said that, quote, in the present crisis, Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, unquote. But for a kid who grew up in the 80s, Reagan's policies would create much of 1980s pop culture as we knew it. His deregulation of industry included the world of toy manufacturing, cartoons, networks, advertising, and marketing. An industry that was once heavily regulated with what could be advertised to children 
soon had no limitations. And it's why we saw an explosion in toys, cartoon shows, commercials, and products that all seemed one and the same. Studies conducted by the Action for Children's Television found that young kids could not differentiate between what was a cartoon or TV show and what was a commercial. But now, with no restrictions, networks, toy manufacturers, and production companies could all work together to overload us with content, both on TV and on store shelves. This gave rise to an era of G.I. Joe, Transformers, My Little Pony, Strawberry Shortcake, and He-Man, just to name a few. If you want the more in-depth story on all of this, I recommend checking out my previous episode all about the history of G.I. Joe. Ronald Reagan remains one of the absolute key figures of the entire 1980s, and it all began with his election in 1980. And here are a few more notable world events that took place in 1980. The year began with a literal bang. Just a few months into a new decade, the world saw the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Once again, everyone, eight people are now known dead this evening following the massive eruption of Mount St. Helens early today. That eruption has radically changed the look of the peak, destroying a large portion of it. Geologists say this is by far the strongest eruption in the latest series, and it continues tonight. I have an episode all about this astonishing event in my previous episodes, but the remarkable eruption killed dozens and completely decimated the surrounding area. Some other notable moments from 1980 include Carl Sagan's 13-part Cosmos series that premiered in September. Even though billions and billions didn't watch it all at once, it became a significant program in the history of science. Some notable books came out in 1980, including The Born Identity, Congo by Michael Crichton, Catch Me If You Can, The Twits by Roald Dahl, and Cosmos by Carl Sagan. 3M released a new product called the Post-It Note. 1980 was a big year for celebrity births. Just some of the people born this year include Ryan Gosling, Channing Tatum, Venus Williams, Macaulay Culkin, Jessica Simpson, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Kim Kardashian. In 1980, a loaf of bread was around 50 cents. The minimum wage was $3.10, and a brand new car would set you back $7,500. And specifically to me and all of the Canadians, on July 1st, O Canada officially became our national anthem. Even though it was first sung in French 100 years prior, the Honorable Robert Stanley Weir's lyrics became the official English version in 1980. As we move into more pop culture, we begin with the movies of 1980. Movies usually reflect the tone of the time period they are released in. Many of the movies of the 70s followed disaster themes, as this was the mindset of many people at the time. The 80s would eventually move into more adventurous, science fiction, and fun, fantastical releases. But the decade still started with a theatrical bang and gave us not only some of the best movies of the decade, but of all time. Here are a few significant releases. When it was released in 1977, Star Wars A New Hope was an obvious hit, but how do you follow up such a blockbuster? Many sequels try to rehash the original and try to recapture the magic. George Lucas, though, went in a different direction 
and told a story that was darker and much more intense. Screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan has stated that The Empire Strikes Back serves as the second act of a three-part play, where everything in that second act tends to go to hell. And that's often the best act of the play. In the case of the Star Wars trilogy, it really was. We went much deeper into the psyche of the characters, and we got one of the best reveals in movie history when Vader remarks to Luke that, quote, no, I am your father. And note that this is the correct line and not the often misquoted Luke, I am your father. The Empire Strikes Back was a genre-changing movie for science fiction. But also in 1980, we got a genre-defining horror movie. I was definitely too young to see The Shining when it came out, but Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece gave us some of the most iconic imagery in film history. The Shining is as notable for its hidden meanings and different interpretations, while also differing from the book written by Stephen King, who famously hated the movie. The film shoot was intense, as famed director Stanley Kubrick was well noted for pushing his actors beyond their limits to get the best possible performances. The set of The Shining was no different, as the actors and crew, and specifically Shelley Duvall, who played Wendy Torrance, were at the point of exhaustion. This led to genuine emotional performances. The scene where Wendy is on the stairs swinging the baseball bat at Jack took a then-record 127 takes. The famous axe chopping down the door scene reportedly took three days to film, with Jack Nicholson having to chop through 60 different doors to get it perfect. And then he improvised the line, here's Johnny. The legacy of The Shining has continued to grow over time and has been a massive influence on not just horror movies, but movies in general. The highest grossing film of 1980 is, unsurprisingly, The Empire Strikes Back, bringing in upwards of $550 million worldwide. Converted for today's money, that's over $2 billion. Going by ticket sales and keeping in mind that films opened on way fewer screens back then, this is one of the most successful movies ever made. And there were some other notable movie releases in 1980, including Airplane, 9 to 5, The Gods Must Be Crazy, The Blue Lagoon, The Blues Brothers, Smokey and the Bandit, Caddyshack, Flash Gordon, Friday the 13th, and of course, Herbie Goes Bananas. 1980 gave us some era-defining movies, and the music of 1980 would be no different. But when it came to the world of music, this was a year that also delivered some heartbreaking tragedy. This was an interesting time. We are still riding a bit of that disco funk wave from the 70s, and many of the styles that would dominate the airwaves in the 80s are not quite prominent yet. Even though bands like Devo, Depeche Mode, and Duran Duran would represent New Wave, a style of music that emerged in the late 70s but progressed as the 80s began, classic rock wasn't going anywhere. Bands like Queen, ACDC, and the Rolling Stones are very prominent in the charts. Some of the big album releases from 1980 include Uprising by Bob Marley and the Wailers, Ace of Spades by Motorhead, Closer by Joy Division, Dirty Mind by Prince, Back in Black by ACDC, and London Calling by The Clash. 
But also going strong was the iconic The Wall by Pink Floyd, which was released in late 1979, but was the number one album on Billboard for a remarkable 15 straight weeks when 1980 began. The Wall would be the best performing album for the entire year. But the band that may have best defined the year 1980 was Blondie. They still had some essence of disco, but capitalized on that new wave sound while still incorporating other genres like reggae. Blondie, fronted by the incredible Debbie Harry, was also experimenting with a new musical form that was still extremely underground in New York. It was called Hip Hop, and in 1980, Blondie was putting together a song that would be released on an album in 1980 and as a single in early 1981. That song was called Rapture and would feature Debbie Harry doing something in the song that in a few years the whole world would know about. Rapping. Blondie's hit single Call Me was the number one single on Billboard's year-end charts. The number two song of the year was Lady by Kenny Rogers, which stayed number one for seven weeks. And 1980 had a very wide range of number one songs, including Rock With You by Michael Jackson, which was number one on Billboard for four weeks, Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen, and Another One Bites the Dust that combined for seven weeks as number one. Funky Town by Lip Sync, Magic by Olivia Newton-John, and Upside Down by Diana Ross, all number one for four weeks each. On the Billboard charts for Best Performing Albums, we also had The Game by Queen, which was number one for five weeks, and Emotional Rescue by The Rolling Stones, which was number one for seven weeks, showing that the old guard was still hanging in there. Here's what the top 10 best-selling albums look like for 1980. Number 10 was The River by Bruce Springsteen. Nine was Disco Alliance by Zodiac. Eight was Ark of a Diver by Steve Winwood. At seven, Glass Houses by Billy Joel. Number six was Escape by Journey. Number five, Aerosmith's Greatest Hits by Aerosmith. The band was on a bit of a downward trajectory as the new decade began, but that would all change in a few years thanks to a new music genre and a group from Hollis, Queens. Number four was another Greatest Hits album, this one by Kenny Rogers. Number three was Guilty by Barbara Streisand. Number two was High Infidelity by REO Speedwagon. And number one, Back in Black, by ACDC. And 1980 was also significant for a few unfortunate reasons. On September 25th, the greatest rock drummer of all time, John Bonham, passed away. Led Zeppelin decided they couldn't continue without the greatest backbone in rock history. And it hurts to think of all the lost music that could have been created had Bonham survived. And speaking of that, of course, is one of the most tragic moments in music history. As the 1980s began, John Lennon was living in New York at the Dakota Hotel and working on some new music. On December 8th, 1980, Lennon was on his way to the Record Plant studio. He signed an album for a fan named Mark David Chapman, but when Lennon returned that night, he was shot five times by Chapman. Lennon was rushed to hospital, but didn't make it. The music world lost a legend who was only 40 years old. Not only had the world lost a legend, but again, selfishly, it hurts to think about the other music we would have missed out on or any potential Beatles reunions. So the world of music was changing very rapidly. But so was the world of technology. 
including a new video game character that would take the world by storm, and a former student from Oxford that put in motion some software that would eventually change the entire world. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In the world of tech in 1980, we are right in the middle of the golden age of video games. Arcades were the place to see and be seen, and it was a huge business. So big, in fact, that arcades in 1980 were a bigger industry than Hollywood. According to the Montreal Gazette, the video game industry grossed over $7 billion in 1980. That's more than double than all the box office revenue for movies that same year. But the biggest video game phenomenon of the year in the 80s, and possibly ever, was a yellow pizza-shaped character. Originally called Puck-Man, Pac-Man was first released in Japan in May 1980. And it didn't take long for Pac-Man fever to run wild as this simple game would dominate pop culture. The game was simple. You just moved around a maze eating dots while avoiding getting eaten by ghosts that had names. They were Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde. The simple gameplay is what made it so popular and addictive. It would be a few years until Pac-Man was released for Atari. So if you wanted to play it, it meant a trip to the arcade. And this incredible popularity turned into massive profits. Pac-Man was quickly making $8 million a week in the U.S. alone. Within a year, 100,000 arcade units were sold with revenue of over a billion dollars. And remember, this is all in quarters. According to The New Yorker, Pac-Man made a billion dollars more than Star Wars A New Hope. This is how gigantic Pac-Man really was. And it only continued to grow into 1981 and 82. Pac-Man would also lead to a massive amount of merchandising in the form of toys, bed sheets, lunch boxes, and anything you can slap a label on. The popularity led to the Pac-Man cartoon series, the song Pac-Man Fever and even Pac-Man cereal. Some of those early Pac-Man cereal commercials even featured a young Christian Bale. And when it came to home video games, 1980 was all about the Atari 2600. Some of the big games that year included Missile Command, Berserk, Rally X, Battlezone, and Star Castle. Commodore had the VIC-20, but it was essentially just a keyboard. Seagate invented the first hard drive disk for microcomputers, and even though it was years away from what it would become, Tim Berners-Lee, a physics student from Oxford and now working for CERN, 
invented Enquire. Enquire was a software that featured something called hypertext, which allowed you to click on a link that took you to separate information and text. This hypertext was fundamental in something that would eventually change our lives forever. Enquire, created so Berners-Lee could keep track of his projects, formed the basis for what would become the World Wide Web. And another interesting item was released in 1980. It was a toy, but also part tech, part art, part problem solving, and originally created for architecture students. You would know this creation by the name of its creator, Erno Rubik. Rubik, a professor from Hungary, wanted to create something for architecture students to teach them about three-dimensional space. But his intent was to also design a puzzle based on geometry. The first prototype was called the Magic Cube and made up of blocks of wood and elastic bands. But the students loved it. And Rubik wondered if this was something that could be mass-produced for other students. The prototype would eventually become the Rubik's Cube and was the hottest toy of 1980. Warning, once you get your hands on Rubik's Cube, you may never be able to put it down. Rubik's Cube, over three billion combinations, but just one solution from Ideal. This thing was an instant hit. Within a few years, a hundred million Rubik's Cubes were sold. It would go on to become one of the best-selling toys in history, with nearly a half billion units having now been sold. The Rubik's Cube was so popular when it was released in 1980 that some of the best-selling books of the year were books on how to solve it. It also led to the infamous Rubik the Amazing Cube cartoon show. Speaking of TV, it's hard to emphasize how important network television was in 1980. There were only three networks, but things were slowly beginning to change in the brave new world of cable television. HBO and Showtime had already been around for a few years, but in 1980, something new entered the picture. Up to this point, we were used to watching our news at specific times during the day, usually 6 and 11. But what about a news channel that ran 24 hours a day? That was the brainchild of Ted Turner. And on June 1st, 1980, the cable news network, or CNN, was launched to the world. America is experiencing a totally new concept in television viewing. It's the cable news network, and it's available to cable homes throughout the United States. Never before has television captured the immediacy of news, the thorough, up-to-the-minute coverage that it does now. The Cable News Network, available 24 hours a day. In 1980, television events were just that, events. And there was no bigger one than the famous Who Shot JR episode of Dallas. This was must-see TV before that phrase was even coined. This episode was the definition of water cooler talk, and everything about this show and episode went viral before that was even a thing. In the final scene of the 1979-1980 season, this scoundrel J.R. Ewing 
is shot twice by an unknown assailant. That episode, one of the most famous TV cliffhanger episodes ever, took place on March 21st, 1980. And the public would have to wait and speculate for an agonizing nine months to find out who shot JR. And it turns out it was, 43-year-old spoiler alert coming, Maggie Simpson, sorry, Kristen Shepard. The Who Done It episode, when the killer was revealed, aired on November 21st, 1980, and was, at the time, the highest rated episode in TV history. 83 million people in the US alone tuned in to watch it, which was nearly 37% of the entire country. 76% of all television sets turned on that night were watching Dallas. But this was much more than an American event. Some 350 million people around the world watched this episode. Excluding sports and news events, this episode is still in the top 20 most watched programs in UK history. 1980 also saw the debut of shows like Booze and Buddies, Magnum P.I., Too Close for Comfort, The Richie Rich Cartoon, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, and The Super Friends. And in 1980, something very interesting first debuted on NBC. It was a new morning show featuring a former weatherman from Indiana. He also dabbled in stand-up comedy and eventually made that his career path. His unique comedy and persona eventually landed him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, where he appeared several times and even hosted. His appearances were such a hit that it was decided that he should have his own morning talk show on NBC. The David Letterman Show first aired in June 1980. A lot of people ask me, well, actually not a lot, uh, closer to a couple of people, they say to me, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? We, we actually hardly know anything about you. Of course, we know that you have hosted The uh, Tonight Show, but let's face it, who hasn't? <laughs> The David Letterman morning show didn't run for very long, but what it did was set the stage for what became Late Night with David Letterman, a program that changed late night TV forever. The morning show could be considered a test run to get the public familiar with Letterman, and it featured a lot of the edgy, often inappropriate, boundary-pushing comedy, which made Late Night with David Letterman so popular. Famous segments like Stupid Petricks first appeared on this morning talk show. Late night talk shows to this day still feature a lot of things comedy-wise that can trace their roots back to David Letterman. And it all began with this daytime talk show. According to Nielsen, here's what the top 10 highest rated shows for the 1980-81 season looked like. And it was mostly dominated by CBS. The network that was first known as the Columbia Broadcast System had seven shows in the top 10 including the top four most-watched shows. Number one, not surprisingly, was Dallas, with an average rating of 34.5, meaning at least a third of all homes with a television were tuning in each week. At number two, with a 27.3 rating, is The Dukes of Hazard. 60 Minutes was third, with a 27 rating. MASH at number four, with a 25.7. The Love Boat at number five, with 24.3. The Jeffersons was at number 6 with a 23.5. Alice was in at number 7 with a 22.9. Tied for 8 was House Calls and Three's Company with a 22.4 rating. 
And at number 10, a show that we never missed in my house, Little House on the Prairie with a 22.1 rating. It's amazing to look back on the astonishing ratings numbers from 1980. The TV landscape is so drastically different today. But it's interesting to note that the average rating for a big show like Monday Night Football today wouldn't even put it near the top 30 most watched shows in 1980. The start of a new decade meant it was time for two Olympic Games. We start in February in Lake Placid, New York for the 13th Olympic Winter Games. And this is a games that can be defined by one incredible moment. There aren't many sporting events bigger in North American history than the miracle on ice when a team of amateur American hockey players with practically no professional experience while also being the youngest team in the tournament took on the juggernaut Soviet Union. This Soviet team had legendary professional players like Sergei Makarov, Valery Karlamov, Boris Mikhailov, Vacheslav Fedosov, and one of the greatest goalies ever Vladislav Tretiak. The Soviets had won five of the last six gold medals in hockey, but this was a powerhouse team, even by Soviet standards. Not only was there no chance of this team losing, but no one should even hold a candle to them. If you were alive during this time, you know what an unprecedented event it was. It's so hard to put this into perspective, but it's like a high school or junior college basketball team knocking off the Bulls in their prime. It's like a team at the bottom of the National League in English football knocking off Man City. It's easy to forget that the Miracle on Ice game wasn't even the gold medal game, but part of the round-robin medal round. The Americans would need to beat Finland to capture gold, which they did a few days later with a 4-2 win. And this Soviet-American issue would carry over into the Summer Olympics of 1980. Held in Moscow, Jimmy Carter pushed for the Americans to boycott the games of the 22nd Olympiad after the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Canada stayed home, as did China, a lot of South America, and what was then West Germany. In the end, 67 nations decided not to participate, so it was not a regular Summer Olympics. But 1980 wasn't just about two Olympic Games. Here are some other sports highlights. Yvonne Goolagong-Kali and Bjorn Borg each win the singles at Wimbledon. Two big boxing events happened in 1980. Sugar Ray Leonard defeated Roberto Duran, and Larry Holmes defeated Muhammad Ali in Ali's last title bout. Held in October 1980, this was the event when in the 10th round, Angelo Dundee, his trainer, stepped into the ring and asked the ref to stop the fight. It was the only time in Ali's career that he had ever lost by a stoppage. In golf, Jack Nicholas won the PGA Championship and the U.S. Open. Genuine Risk wins the Kentucky Derby. In the National Hockey League, the New York Islanders win the Stanley Cup, beginning the Islanders dynasty for the next four years. The LA Lakers, with a rookie named Magic Johnson, win the NBA championship. The World Series was won by the Philadelphia Phillies. And to cap off a good year for Pennsylvania-based sports teams, the Pittsburgh Steelers won the Super Bowl, with MVP going to Terry Bradshaw. 
As I look back on the 1980s and specifically the year 1980, to me, it sometimes feels like it wasn't that long ago. But put it this way, if you're listening to this episode within a year or so of its release, the year 2060 is closer to us than 1980 is. You can also put it this way, if you're listening to this episode within a year of its release, the time difference between now and 1980 is the same length as between 1980 in a few years before World War II even started. It was a whole new decade, and the 1980s had to take much of the burden of the 70s, but try to shake that off into a new direction. It would take a few years, but that new direction would definitely happen, giving rise to one of the most unique decades of the entire 20th century. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, you know there's plenty more where that came from. I gave some suggestions for further listening, but there are a ton of great previous shows for you to jump into. And make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on more great 1980s content. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>